0: By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com gps. netsuite.com gps.
1: This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live. Today on the show, world leaders gathered at the G20 Summit in Rome this weekend to discuss economic recovery, climate change, the fight against COVID-19, and more. What were the successes and failures? I'll ask the man who led a G20 effort to rescue the global economy successfully
0: the last time around. A global plan for recovery and reform. Former British Prime Minister, Gordon Brown. Then, it has been
1: two months since the United States completed its chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. I sat down with the lead negotiator of the peace deal with the Taliban, America's former special envoy, Zalmay Khalilzad.
2: Nobody is happy with the way the final phase of the withdrawal happened. What went wrong? And what
1: is next for Afghanistan? I will ask them. Finally, Democrats have been scrambling for months to finalize President Biden's $1.75 trillion spending bill. The biggest roadblock has been how to pay for it. I'll talk to a leading expert with a theory that says the big price tag is really not a problem. But first, here's my take. Have we witnessed another Sputnik moment? The Financial Times has reported that China tested a hypersonic missile this summer, though China denies this. General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, compared the test to the Soviet Union's Sputnik launch during the Cold War. I don't know if it's quite a Sputnik moment, but I think it's very close to that. General Milley should dust off his history books. The Chinese test has nothing in common with Sputnik, and saying so feeds a dangerous paranoia growing in Washington these days. To recall, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, the first man-made satellite to orbit the planet, on October 4, 1957. Both the US and the USSR had been planning to launch satellites into space for years, and the fact that Moscow got there first was a huge shock to Americans. Coming in the wake of multiple powerful Soviet nuclear tests, Sputnik signaled that in the next frontier, space, the Soviets were ahead. Sputnik was a revolution in the space race. Hypersonic missiles, on the other hand, are very old news a hypersonic missile travels at five times the speed of sound. Starting in 1959, the United States and the Soviet Union deployed intercontinental ballistic missiles that traveled around 20 times the speed of sound. Even Germany's V-2 rockets, first launched against Paris during the last phase of World War II, flew at close to hypersonic speeds. Cameron Tracy, a Stanford scientist and expert on the topic, has pointed out that hypersonic weapons are neither faster nor stealthier than ICBMs. Oh, and by the way, that Chinese missile missed its target by 24 miles. As Fred Kaplan, the author and journalist, notes, it's possible that the test was China's attempt to nullify America's vast missile defense system. But that system, as he points out, is an expensive white elephant that failed three of its last six tests, despite hundreds of billions of dollars that have been spent on it to date. Perhaps that's why the Pentagon hasn't even tested the system since the spring of 2019. And even if the system had perfect aim, it could still be rendered useless with small asymmetrical measures like simply firing two missiles at the same time. Alas, don't expect science and facts to have much sway in this discussion. That is because there is now a bipartisan consensus in Washington. We're coming dangerously close to a new Cold War. For the Pentagon, it's an opportunity. Raising fears about a huge and tech-savvy enemy is a surefire way to guarantee vast new budgets that can be spent countering the enemy's every move, real and imagined. The mood goes beyond Washington. Foreign Affairs has published an essay by the scholar and famous realist John Mearsheimer, who castigates American policymakers for engaging China for the last four decades. He predicts that our active encouragement of a peer competitor will lead to a new Cold War that could get hot and even nuclear. But realist logic only gets you so far. The high priest of realism, Kenneth Waltz, often predicted that once the Cold War ended and Japan had gotten strong, it would throw off the shackles of dependence on America for security and acquire nuclear weapons. Mearsheimer himself predicted in 1990 that as the Cold War ended, NATO would collapse and Europe would become a cockpit of warring states as it had been before the Cold War. He believed that many European states, chiefly Germany, would likely acquire nuclear weapons. None of these predictions have come to pass. In fact, the European Union has grown tighter and stronger in the decades after the Cold War, and Japan's military remains resolutely non-nuclear. I raise this to make the point that Mearsheimer looked at only one of the great forces that motivates states in the international system, power politics. But there are others, like economic interdependence. The world today is thoroughly enmeshed in a complex global economic system in which war would hurt the aggressor nearly as much as the victim. There have been almost no land grabs since 1945, the most notable exception being Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014. This amounts to an almost unprecedented declaration of respect for borders, In addition, nuclear deterrence has raised the stakes, making countries far more cautious about launching a great power war. The task of American foreign policy is to recognize that traditional power politics can indeed deter Chinese expansionism, while also recognizing the ways in which interdependence might constrain it. The U.S. should make an effort to deploy both tools— this approach will certainly prove far more complicated to implement than scaremongering and chest thumping, but it is precisely the one that is likely to keep the world at peace and prosperity. Go to cnn.com slash for a link to my Washington Post column this week, and let's get started. earlier today the g20 leaders tossed coins into rome's trevi fountain tradition says those who do so will return to rome good for them but on the actual agenda this weekend were key issues like the global economy and the fight against covid 19. and today's events are all about climate change before the leaders jet off to the cop 26 climate conference in scotland joining me now from scotland is gordon brown when he was the british prime minister in 2009 he hosted a G20 that made great progress in healing the then broken global economy. Gordon, welcome. Hello. You, have been, uh, you have been urging that the, the G20 take active measures to close the, the vaccine gap that you call immoral. 60 to 70% of the developed world is vaccinated. Three to 5% of Africa is vaccinated. Uh, and yet, no great measures came out of the G20 uh, on this front. Why do you think they're not moving in this direction? As you point out, hundreds of millions of vaccines are actually expiring uh, and will, get, will be used by no one.
0: Yeah, we could lose 100 million vaccines just wasted past the use-by date by the end of the year. If we don't transfer the vaccines that are unused in the global north, to the global south that are desperately in need of them. And what's actually happened at the G20 is they've understood we need to get to 40% vaccination in the poorest countries by December. There are more donations that are being given, but what we actually need is an operational plan, a timetable for delivery, month by month airlifts of vaccines out to the places that need them most. It's a military operation uh, of a scale that hasn't yet been considered that we need. And I hope that as a result of the communique that we'll get later this afternoon, this sense of urgency is recognized and we do something about it because nobody is safe until everybody is safe. We've got to vaccinate the rest of the world if America and the West is going to be safe at the same time.
1: Vladimir Putin says that part of what's going on here is protectionism and vaccine nationalism, uh, or else w- we would have a system of sort of registering and, uh, and 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 giving a stamp of approval to the Russian vaccines, the Chinese vaccines. Is he right?
0: Uh, he's right about nationalism. I think he's wrong about uh, expecting Russia just to get a clean bill of health until its vaccine's been approved. The, the most important thing is that we realize that we need a joint effort here. Between Canada, America, the European Union and the United Kingdom, there are more than 200 million, perhaps even 300 million vaccines lying unused. And that's even after taking to account boosters in every country, the young people vaccinated in every country. That is the extent of overordering. And basically the G20 has got a monopoly of the supply of vaccines. And it's got to release them if the rest of the world is to be vaccinated. We've got international organisations and they're trying their best and I applaud them, but they don't have control of the vaccine supply. The G20 countries have got to release these vaccines and release them now. You know, this is probably the biggest public policy failure of our times, because when you hoard vaccines in one part of the world and deny them, therefore, to the rest of the world, it is indeed a moral outrage, but it's something that you could do something about with proper coordination.
1: Let me ask you, uh, Gordon, about the other big issue that, the, that many say is a policy failure on climate. Uh, the Economist calls COP26 the great cop-out. Um, Paris has established the targets, but now it seems to me that the great challenge is establishing mechanisms by which countries will meet these targets of getting to lower emissions. Probably that means a carbon uh, price or a carbon tax in the developed world. And it means some green subsidies in the developing world to wean them off coal. Um, how do we get there?
0: Well, there are two policy pa- failures that could happen here. We're going to get agreements on coal. We're going to get agreements on elect- electric cars. We're going to get agreements on forestry. The 2050 net zero, net carbon zero target is going to be announce what we're missing is two things first as you say you've got to ratchet up the commitments of each country during the 2020s otherwise we'll never get to the 1.5 degrees that we want to be at equally you've got to help the developing countries and this is the same problem if you like as vaccination you've got to give them financial support to enable them to do the mitigation and adaptation and it's a tragedy that after 11 years We promised this 100 billion financing to the poorer countries 11 years ago uh, and we've never reached it. We've got to reach it this week and I believe there are special measures that could be taken and I've been suggesting an innovative finance facility alongside many others that could actually get us beyond the 100 billion and get us much beyond the 100 billion. But that's got to be done if there's going to be trust in the developing countries uh, that the West particularly will deliver on its promises.
1: Do you think at the heart of these failures, the rise of nationalism, protectionism, is the lack of American leadership? Because after all, certainly there's no other country that could fill it right now.
0: Well, I think President Biden has led on global taxation. He is putting forward proposals on climate and on vaccination. But I think what's really happening here is America is used to acting unilaterally in what used to be a unipolar age. And America's now got to lead Uh, multilateral action in a multipolar age. There's no use harking back to an age where you can just say something and it's going to be done. You've got to bring other people along with you. And that didn't happen, as you know, over Afghanistan, but it could happen over this climate summit and it could happen over vaccination, the two big public policy failures of our time. And yes, I look to American leadership, but it's American leading a multilateral approach uh, in a multipolar era.
1: Gordon Brown, thank you for those wise words. Thank you. Next on GPS, the man who worked for both Trump and Biden in negotiating with the Taliban before they took Kabul, Zal Khalilzad. He resigned from his State Department post, and you will hear from him next. In September 2018, President Trump named Zalmay Khalilzad to be his special representative for Afghan reconciliation. President Biden kept him on to continue negotiating with the Taliban. But then in August, the Taliban took Kabul, essentially completing its takeover of Afghanistan. Two weeks ago, Khalilzad sent his resignation letter to Secretary of State Blinken, the ambassador who wrote a book called The Envoy, Join me for a debrief about what exactly happened at the end of America's longest war. Welcome, Zal Khalilzad. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you again. Um, so let's start with the agreement that was negotiated with the Taliban. You negotiated it under Donald Trump. Trump's own national security advisor, General McMaster, says this was a surrender agreement. Was it? no. Uh- the president, uh, President Trump,
2: had uh, decided uh, after trying uh, what uh, McMaster had put in place to escalate the war in Afghanistan, give the military, the authorities uh, to do whatever it would take uh, to put us on the path to victory. And uh, uh, he came to a judgment that uh, we were not winning. We, in fact, were losing ground. And therefore, he decided that uh, the war was too costly, financially, given the change in the world, uh, the rise of China, that $40 billion a year spent in Afghanistan uh, was not appropriate, uh, given his evaluation of the importance of Afghanistan. So therefore, uh, he wanted to withdraw. And I was asked uh, whether I could take the lead in negotiating an agreement not only to ensure a peaceful withdrawal of our forces, but also assurances on terrorism from the Talibs. And uh, uh, at my uh, uh, urging and Secretary Pompeo's support to see if we could get the Afghans to negotiate with each other as part of an agreement for a new government that will end the Afghan war as well.
1: So this is a very important thing that I think many commentators have said and Americans, I think, generally do think, which is, um, why couldn't we have just stayed on? A number of people have said, look, we only had 2,500 troops in Afghanistan a, f- yes. a few years ago. Things seemed to be fine. No Americans were being, ki- were being killed. Right. But you say that situation was not sustainable.
2: Well, it, uh, that situation was a result of the agreement with the Taliban, that they wouldn't attack us as we were withdrawing. And the withdrawal was in phases. Phase one was to come down from about uh, 15,000 fighters, soldiers, and 20,000 contractors that were supporting the Afghans and our forces to to 8,600. And then from 8,600, we came down to 4,600, and then to 2,500 before President Trump left office. So uh, I think that if we had told them we are not withdrawing, we are staying at 2,500, The war between us and the Taliban would have restarted, and then I believe the military would have come and said, in order to be able to protect ourselves, to prevent further Taliban uh,
1: progress on the battlefield, we would need more forces. And it's fair to say in your judgment and looking at the facts on the ground, over the last five years, the Taliban was winning and we were losing. Yeah, over the past seven years, actually, uh,
2: uh, that uh, the Taliban were winning and they were making progress. We were losing ground. And this was when we had 15,000 or more. And so the, uh, the question uh, that, that I have for General McMaster and other critics uh, as to uh, after uh, 17, 15, 16 years, billions of dollars, why was that the case? that we in fact were militarily losing ground each year and that the option was either to escalate uh, and maybe try something very different. And some numbers were in order to win, we needed four or 500,000 troops given the size of Afghanistan and its population or stay uh, at a smaller number, the war goes on, no victory. Perhaps if the numbers were low, even losing more ground. And the president of the United States, two presidents, not only one, maybe three, if you include oh. President Obama, that thought that uh, they were not willing to escalate that much. And, uh, and they thought what we were doing was not sustainable.
1: There were, there were charges made that even if you had to withdraw, the Biden administration mishandled the withdrawal badly. Do you think that that's a fair criticism?
2: Well, nobody is happy with the way the final phase of the withdrawal happened with the rush of the population out of fear because a lot of people, including many in the government, argued that if the Talibs move into Kabul, there would be a bloodbath. The destruction of Kabul, which had happened in the 90s, could be repeated. So there was fear as the Taliban were coming into Kabul. And then there was the opportunity uh, where a message spread across Afghanistan like wildfire that anyone who can make it to the airport will be taken to the United States. So you had this massive rush of thousands and thousands of people to the airport. And with those scenes, uh, nobody is, uh, 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 is uh, of the view that this was very positively done. Of course, in terms of logistics of getting a lot of people out, it was obviously a significant achievement. No other power could do what we did, but if you look at it in its totality, it was obviously uh, very undesirable.
1: Next on GPS, I will ask Ambassador Khalizad about the complete collapse of the Kabul regime and the takeover by the Taliban. How did this happen so fast when we come back? And now for more of my interview with the former U.S. Special Representative for Afghan Reconciliation, Zalme Khalilzad. Ambassador, you were in Doha negotiating with the Taliban. Right. Um, and you had a plan which would have been a kind of interim government, a phase transition, right. uh, you know, a coalition of different forces in Afghanistan, Instead, what we got was the complete collapse of the Kabul regime, the Taliban's total takeover. Why did that happen?
2: Well, I believe that there were two uh, reasons for it. Uh, One was the gap between the two sides. The Afghan side was large. Part of the blame goes to the Taliban. The Afghan government and and the Taliban. And part of the blame goes to the Taliban on the government side. Their grand miscalculation of President Ghani and the elite in Kabul was they thought the United States would never withdraw from Afghanistan. They thought we're close to China, close to Pakistan, Russia, Iran. Who would want to leave there? So they didn't move uh, when they should have moved. And second, I think that uh, uh, President Ghani miscalculated about uh, the strength of his armed forces. He thought uh, that, We, in fact, the United States, were holding them back from fighting the war the way Afghans would fight it. And that without our, even if we left, which he didn't believe, then he would be freer uh, to fight. And so he was, I think, intransigent, uh, wanting to stay in power, uh, didn't make the compromises uh, uh, that was necessary. The Talibs were also the other intransigent elements, but their calculation turned out to have been... Uh, but they were,
1: they were winning. They, so they, they
2: thought they knew that the, the president wanted to leave. So they knew time was on their side. And their intransigence was that we, if we wait, the balance will shift in our favor and we will get better terms. So I think there was problems on both sides.
1: But Ghani's uh, sudden departure yes. also cr- caused that collapse, right? Because oh, uh, no, suddenly no. the Taliban realized they didn't have to share power.
2: Right. Well... As the balance began to to shift, because initially many uh, districts fell to the Taliban without a real serious fight. Then provincial centers, uh, provinces fell to them. When they were close to Kabul, I tried one more time uh, to see if we could get an inclusive government rather than power sharing, which was earlier. But the balance had shifted so much that they uh, said they will be dominant, but they would want the republic to be part of it. And they would negotiate, for two weeks, and then there will be a peaceful transfer while President Ghani will be president, then he will turn over power to this new government. And the Talibs agreed not to enter Kabul. In fact, they had some units there that they withdrew. But uh, he, he had agreed to it. Uh, there is also some of his uh, close aides have told me he even taped, videotaped the message to the Afghan people that was supposed to be uh, broadcasted that night, but he then uh, uh, went away. It's possible that it was fear uh, that uh, that uh, the Taliban might not honor it, that he might get caught. Uh, but whatever the reasons, he abandoned uh, his country and he abandoned many close aides. Once the government had disintegrated and there were law and order concerns that the banks would be raided, so the Taliban then went in.
1: Um, when you look at the Taliban now, yes. people say they're the same? They're, some people say they're worse because 20 years of fighting, uh, that it's a, it is a bloody, vengeful, you know, quasi-terrorist organization.
2: Well, it, it is yes and no. I think it, it, it's hard to make the case that they are the same. First, Afghanistan is not the same, uh, which has uh, to be stated very clearly. Millions are now have gone to school, to university, men and women. Uh, it, it Kabul, which was a dead city, is now a five and a half million people city, totally transformed. And now the struggle uh, uh, is between Talibs and this... Uh,
1: it's uh, new Afghanistan.
2: New Afghanistan. Who's going to win in the struggle that is now between Afghan, The Talibs Uh, allowing uh, uh, education, although uh, elementary uh, and to college and private schools, women and men are going. They have not interfered with it. They have allowed high school education for girls in four or five provinces. They want to separate them into uh, uh, Segregated. segregated. They are getting ready, and they say to allow the rest, and the same will be true of the university. Press is relatively free Uh, If you watch Afghan evening news, as I do, and uh, there is a very tough engagement with Taliban leaders by the media, women anchors, uh, at the same time, uh, uh, you know, uh, cell phones all over, uh, interaction with the world. Uh, I think the Taliban, uh, uh, while some of them are the same, others have changed and they're adjusting to change that Afghanistan.
1: As an Afghan-American... Uh, and somebody who spent so much time in this. How has this left you feeling?
2: Well, I'm not happy about the, the, uh, for, uh, that I did not succeed uh, in the, uh, to respond to the very understandable uh, human aspirations of the Afghan people, their yearning for peace. I tried my very best to bring the two sides to negotiate on a roadmap to respond to the aspirations of the people who had been, uh, or had been at war for 40 years. So that uh, struggle goes on. The struggle for, a, I mean, not many, as many Afghans are dying now, but the struggle for a, an inclusive Afghanistan where rural and urban uh, Afghans, more Islamic, less uh, uh, religious in, in terms of politics, could come to some agreement on a formula that... Uh, respects the differences that exist, and that's the challenge for for the Talibs and the challenge for our policy. I recommend that we use uh, uh, the leverage that we have, uh, which is considerable, uh, to negotiate a roadmap for the future of Afghanistan. A detailed uh, roadmap written uh, 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 that would reflect the consensus of the Taliban because they, they, uh, uh, there are different factions. And, but once you have it in writing, the, the record generally is that, uh, that uh, uh, they go along in terms of implementing it.
1: Ambassador that? pleasure to have you on. Thank
2: you. It's great to be with you.
1: Next on GPS, much of the press coverage about President Biden's bills focus on the price tags. But does the cost even matter? A surprising answer from a famous economist when we come back. Let's get this done. That's what President Biden said before heading to the G20 in Rome. He wanted Congress to pass his proposed $1.75 trillion climate and social spending bill and $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. Both have had their price tags halved and they're still hand-wringing over how much they cost. But does the cost really matter? Stephanie Kelton is a professor of economics and public policy and the author of The Deficit Myth. Welcome, Stephanie. Um, one of the things that you have talked about in your book and, and, uh, is that when we think about this question of are we spending too much, will this kind of deficit spending cause problems like inflation, you say it's as if the last 30 years of history didn't happen. Tell us what you mean by that.
3: Well, Freed, for so many years, we have been taught to think about government deficits as something that's inherently irresponsible. Maybe in a time of crisis, like after the financial crisis and the Great Recession or during the COVID pandemic, we make allowances and we say, well, OK, we have to run some deficits because it's a moment of crisis. But in more normal times, we're told that deficits are something that we ought to strive to avoid, that governments ought to balance their budgets, that they should effectively balance a budget like a household, that deficits are dangerous because they do things like driving up interest rates, making our long-term debt unsustainable, producing a slower growing economy, putting us at risk of national bankruptcy and solvency, turning into Greece, the kind of thing that we saw in 2010 with many countries in Europe struggling with debt. So we've been taught to think of deficits as something that's uh, inherently dangerous and risky. And uh, I think the last 30 years, as you just said, really should cause us to rethink a lot of that.
1: And and explain what you mean by that, that we, we have been going through, we've been spending, we've run up large deficits. Countries like Japan have run up huge deficits and no inflation.
3: Yeah, Japan's been running large fiscal deficits for the last three decades. And, and you're right, with little inflation to show for it. The U.S. has been running fiscal deficits basically my entire life, with the exception of really four years during the Clinton presidency. And, you know, we have just witnessed In the last 18 months or so, Congress commit about $5 trillion to fighting the pandemic, supporting the economy. And what did we end up with? We ended up with the shortest recession in U.S. history. So we have demonstrated the power of fiscal policy, what it is possible to do, lifting nearly half of all the kids in this country out of poverty, supporting families, supporting small and large businesses, protecting this economy through the pandemic. And it works and it works works without producing all of the negative consequences that we've been taught to associate with deficits.
1: What about the argument that now you are seeing inflation? Larry Summers has argued that, the, that right now, because of the, the really the COVID relief spending um, that, was, that was in his view too much, uh, you are seeing inflation. Uh, Summers, I should uh, explain, does support a lot of the social spending and the infrastructure bills, but he feels like, all of it together is producing inflation, and the numbers do seem to be ticking up, right?
3: Well, look, one of the first things that we teach students in their very first economics course is not to confuse correlation with causation. So, yes, we have had two things happen. We have had a huge increase in fiscal support, so large government deficits that have supported the economy and pulled us out of a recession very, very quickly and yes we have higher than normal inflationary pressures not just here in the US Farid, but of course around the world and so you could look at these two things and say they're happening alongside one another therefore it must be evidence that the government has pushed too far with fiscal policy that in fact the spending is creating the extra inflationary pressures we see today i don't think that's right at all and if you look at what let's say the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank they've got a research staff and some of their researchers, just within the last two weeks, published a study asking this exact question. How much of the current inflation we're experiencing can we trace to the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package that was passed in March? In other words, is Larry right? Is Larry Summers right that that is what's been driving a lot of the inflation that we are currently experiencing? What they found uh, is that the answer is unequivocally no, that this year, Uh, That spending will add something like 0.3 percentage points to the inflation index that the Federal Reserve cares most about and that next year. It will add about 0.2% to inflation. In other words, it is practically negligible. And what we're dealing with, our supply chain and reopening, the pressures related to those kinds of challenges are pushing inflation higher, but it doesn't appear that uh, it is correct to say that the government pushed spending too far.
1: Um, And what about the long-term issue of entitlement spending, Medicare, Social Security, all going, you know, the people say, look, we're facing a, a future where spending is going to take off, so we have to be careful today.
3: Well, look, we have commitments that we have made to retirees, to dependents, to the disabled in the form of Social Security. And we have commitments that we have uh, made to people receiving Medicare. And so there are two separate questions here, right? One is, can the federal government afford... Stephanie, I, I,
1: I'm... I'm- I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh, okay. I, I realize I got the timing wrong. We, we are out of time. We're going to have you come back uh, and talk about all this more. I just want to give one, one thought, leave the viewers with one thought, which is the spending is over 10 years. It's important to keep in mind, and it's about $3 trillion. America's GDP over that 10 years will be about $300 trillion. And we will be back. And now for the last look. America's hottest new export is not an iPhone or a social media app. It's an idea, the big lie. It has found a receptive consumer in President Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil. For months, he has been contending that Brazil's electronic voting system, which delivered Bolsonaro himself a decisive victory in 2018, is somehow in danger of turning up fraudulent results in the country's presidential elections next year. As with Donald Trump's lie, there is absolutely no evidence to support this claim, but that has not stopped Bolsonaro from repeating it in rambling live addresses on social media, at rallies, and in interviews to Brazil's conservative news outlets. And Bolsonaro has been even more aggressive than Trump in peddling his lie. This summer, he championed a constitutional amendment that would use a paper ballot to back up the electronic system. As the AP reported, three Supreme Court justices said this would merely provide opportunity for baseless fraud claims. In July, Bolsonaro issued a veiled threat to lawmakers saying that if the elections weren't clean, they might not be held at all. His threat didn't work. In August, Congress rejected the measure. But that didn't deter the president from his message. On September 7th, the 199th anniversary of Brazil's independence, Bolsonaro called for rallies in cities across the country. He ratcheted up the rhetoric ahead of the event, telling supporters that he had three future options, being arrested, getting killed, or victory. As the New York Times notes, 150 lawmakers, former heads of state and former ministers from 26 countries issued a joint statement raising fears that the September 7th rally could turn into an insurrection. On the day itself, tens of thousands of supporters thronged the streets of Sao Paulo. Addressing a crowd there, Bolsonaro declared that only God would remove him from power. Thankfully, whatever Bolsonaro's intent, the event did not turn into a repeat of the January 6th Capitol riot. It's not coincidental that this push comes at a time when Bolsonaro's popularity is at a record low, and he trails in the opinion polls his opponent, former president Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva. That Bolsonaro is so closely following Donald Trump's 2020 election script should not surprise us, considering he has used the support of prominent figures in Trump world. Steve Bannon said recently that Brazil's election was the second most important in the world, predicting that Bolsonaro would win unless the election was stolen by the machines. And Donald Trump himself endorsed Bolsonaro enthusiastically in a statement issued just on Tuesday, declaring that the Brazilian leader and he were great friends. Now, the affinity between the two leaders is well established. Bolsonaro has long been called the Trump of the tropics. But with the big lie, the Brazilian leader is emulating the most dangerous aspect of Donald Trump's presidency and post-presidency, eroding trust in the most basic tenet of the democratic system. The one without which it cannot survive. Free and fair elections. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Now, streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN
0: flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com/slash callmecountry. Max
1: subscription required.